Welcome to Sedaris. One year ago, we officially launched the church. So let's just make some proclamations about what that tells us about who God is. God is good. Can I get an amen? amen. God is faithful. Amen. God is merciful. Amen. God is trustworthy. <laughs> We're not sure about that one. God is trustworthy. God is steadfast. God is our present and always anchor. God is our strength. God is our redeemer. Say it louder. All right. You know, you set out to start something new for God in a city like Seattle, and you know that you cannot do it if God is not present. So that we're still sitting here today, that we're still preaching the gospel, that we still are seeing new people join our community, get connected, be known, get into conversation, consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that God is still with us, and so we all say one more time, amen. amen. I just want to thank every person who's helped over the last year. There's been a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. A lot of sacrifice that has gone into starting this church. So thank you to each and every one of you. Uh, you're ultimately responsible, not to me, not to Sedaris Church, but to the Lord Almighty. And so I hope that you hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not easy working for the Lord. And it's not easy doing it week after week after week. There's so many ways that we can convince ourselves that God doesn't need our help, that He doesn't want our help, but we'll study tonight that there's a far more profound reason to work with God hand in hand. I'm excited to talk about that tonight. Let's pray and just thank God for what He's done. Father, we thank You for all the firsts that we got to experience over this last year all the new people that I've met. I mean, tonight, Lord, feels like a Valentine's Day dinner with each of those people who now I've known for many for one year exactly. And so we thank you that you've brought them into our midst. We thank you that they're still here, that they're getting connected, that they're learning what it means to follow you. We just pray that you'd give us new, refreshed, renewed energy as we step into the next year. We know that you don't call us to one year. You call us to an eternity of life lived with you. So we thank you that over the last year we've got to practice that together, that we've got to see what that might look like, that we've got to see just a glimpse into the heavenly body of Christ that will rejoice in your presence for eternity. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're starting a brand new uh, teaching series tonight, and I hope you're excited about it. Uh, we're starting a series on the parables of Jesus. And the reason that we're starting a new series on the parables of Jesus, the whole reason that we're here is because Jesus has called us to gather together. And so we've been looking, over the last year, we've been looking a lot at uh, the words of some of the early 
uh, apostles that wrote epistles to the church, and we've been trying to figure out what does it look like and what does it mean to be the body of Christ, to live and give the world a glimpse into the heavenly realities of who God is and what life with Him looks like. And so we've been, in some sense, focused inwardly in building the type of community that's strong enough, that's robust enough to then go out and see what we can do for the glory of God in the city of Seattle. And to be honest, we have much work to do when it comes to learning how to do that well. So I feel like anytime you sort of celebrate the end of a year and the beginning of a new year, it's good to sort of think about, okay, now what, Lord? And this next year, I really hope that our focus is on looking out. We say that healthy communities do three things. We look up and we ask, who, who are you, Lord? Tell us who you are and tell us about your son, Jesus Christ. Tell us about truth, what's real, what's really real, what's actually good. And then we are asked to look in and we say, who am I? Who has God created me to be? What does community look like? But then we must turn our eyes outwards and say, God hasn't given us this for ourselves, but to others. And the best way to figure out how to look out and how to see others well is by listening to the words of Jesus himself, who did not stay in heaven, though that was his prerogative, but chose to come to earth to live amongst us. And he gives us the perfect example of what it means to look out. And he used parables to teach how then shall we live? What does the kingdom of God look like? So we're teaching to start this new year the parables because it's the words of Jesus. And Jesus is the one to go to to figure out how to look out well. The other reason that I think the parables are so exciting and so fun is that most people have heard of the parables. Whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you are a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, you've heard of the parables. And I was reminded, some of you might be too young, but there's a very popular TV show called Seinfeld. You heard of this? Great TV show. Uh, It's funny if you go back and you watch episodes and you realize like how far television has come, because it was still pretty staged (laughs) as far as a sitcom goes. But if you were a Seinfeld fan, and I was a Seinfeld fan, what you realized is that the very last episode of Seinfeld ever was an episode about a parable. And it was the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember this? I don't want to spoil it for you, but you're probably not going to go, I mean, you're not going to go watch it, but... Jerry and Elaine and Kramer and George, they all end up getting arrested because while vacationing... Or on their way, actually, to vacation, they have to make an emergency landing, and they stop in this small town. I think it was in uh, New Hampshire or something. And they see someone getting their car stolen. And instead of helping out, they allow it to happen, and they videotape it, and they laugh. And and they end up getting arrested, because there's a new law on the books called the Good Samaritan Law. Okay, this is, of course, a parable of Jesus being used prominently in probably one of the most anticipated finales in TV history. And it's all about what does it mean to be a good Samaritan. So everyone knows about the parables, but also this is true. Most of us, including myself, have a limited understanding of what Jesus actually was teaching in the parables. There's so much more to the parables 
than what we think that we know. I'm in that group. I have so much to learn about the parables because I've heard them, I've heard the stories, I think I know what they mean. But in fact, the Good Samaritan is not only about helping others. Interesting. So we'll be looking at the Good Samaritan. That'll be something that uh, we'll get to. But over the next 12 weeks or so, we're going to be looking at some of the famous parables of Jesus and asking these questions. What is really being said? Now, to be fair, I do want to sort of get you up to speed on uh, how do we look at the parables. Because church is not just me coming up here and interpreting everything for you and you just absorbing and consuming. Hopefully you're engaging with the parables, you're listening, you're saying, what, are, what am I hearing? Maybe you go home and you read the parables, maybe in your fellowship group you're talking about the parables. And so let me give you a little bit of background so you can understand what is a parable and how should we understand and interpret them so that you can consider them for yourselves. So what is a parable? A parable is a brief metaphorical narrative. It's a story consisting of usually two layers of meaning. Jesus didn't invent the parable nor was he the only one using parables during the time that he lived. But of course, parables, the parables of Jesus, are the most well-known, and they're the most well-known parables in the history of the world. So I think that they're important. Now, for most uh, of, the ent- uh, of the history of the church, the vast majority of the history of the church, scholars and theologians tended to interpret the parables allegorically, which means that they were always looking for some higher transcendent message in the parables. And and sometimes they would force these higher transcendent meanings. Let me give you an illustration. The 4th and 5th century, uh, Augustine, one of the most well-known theologians in the church, he wrote about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the way he interpreted it, he said this, The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story about Adam who left the heavenly city was attacked on the road by Satan, and then the law and the prophets weren't enough to save him. But Christ, the Good Samaritan, he rescued him, taking him to the church, which was the inn, for safekeeping until he would return. So you see how he's sort of, I mean, he's just leaped way up into this other, other stratosphere, and the question is, is that what Jesus was talking about? So, for centuries and centuries of the church, this is how most of the parables were treated. But, in more recent years, uh, and I think rightly so, scholars have said, wait a minute, that's a little bit of over-allegorization. Because, in fact, how would anybody have known what he was talking about because he had yet to go to the cross, he had yet to, to die, and he had yet to say that I'm coming back. And so, rightly they said, maybe it's teaching something else. But then there was this swing to the other side where they said, no, there's no allegory in parables. In fact, it's all just right there. It's all about helping the person you see on the side of the road, for instance, and there's only one main point to every parable. This became a very popular notion, particularly all the way up through the uh, first three quarters of the 20th century. This was sort of the predominant view. However, uh, there's a new sort of growing minority of scholars one of whom was one of my professors at Denver Seminary, Dr. Craig Blomberg. He's one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. Uh, He's written extensively on the topic of the parables. He has a book. I'll be interacting with that book a lot 
If you want to dive deeper into understanding the structure and the literary content of the parables, I can give you the title of that book and uh, you can do some study on your own. But he uh, proposed uh, the parables should not, we should not take allegory completely out of that because actually in the few times that Jesus explains his own parable, he's doing just that. He's talking about something or someone that is not in the immediate context of the parable and so he himself is using allegory. He also would say, well, yes, there's typically one maybe dominant idea in each parable. However, there's usually two or three ideas total that are trying to be taught. And so I'll show you how that goes as we sort of go through the parables. You say, this is very academic, Dave. Well, thank you. But I would agree with Blomberg that although you don't want to over-allegorize the parables and see things that aren't there... It's definitely talking about spiritual truth as much as it's talking about pragmatic, practical truth, though it's not not talking about practical, pragmatic truth. And yes, there may be one dominant point, but there are several points that I think Jesus is trying to teach through the parables. So Jesus himself talks about why he chooses to speak in parables. Mark 4, 10-12 says this, Jesus himself is giving his rationale. Here's what he says. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, You have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and he's quoting here the Old Testament, they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's a very interesting answer that Jesus gives to why he uses parables. In short, though, here's what he's saying. He's explaining that what the parables are doing are revealing secrets not previously understood about God's plans for his people. His plans for his people. And so, for those already out of touch with God, the parables are Jesus' enigmatic way, quite forceful, of revealing these secrets about the coming kingdom of God. But for those without ears to understand and without eyes to perceive, the parables actually further repel and repulse them for they don't understand what Jesus means. But for those who are truly open to honestly considering Jesus and his claims, here's what the parables do. They give greater insight and understanding and they are very valuable for discipleship This is why he told the parables. That's Jesus in his own words. So this is so important to understand when we approach the parables. There is always mystery. There is always mystery involved when we talk about the kingdom of God. There's always mystery involved. And why is there mystery when we talk about the kingdom of God? Because in a very real way, human language can never fully articulate the realities of God and the realities of His kingdom. Uh, That's not to say that there's nothing we can know about the kingdom of God. It's just to say we can never fully understand the kingdom of God. And the reason is because our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite mind of God and His plans for His kingdom. We can know, but we just can't know fully. So there's always mystery 
Therefore, when there's mystery involved, when we're trying to understand the infinite, when we're only finite, what do we need? We need someone or something to reveal to us the truth. And we needed Jesus to reveal to us the truth about the kingdom. And he so often does this through parables. They're this very special type of rhetorical device that Jesus chooses to use to awaken epiphany in his people to the mystery of the kingdom. And so I think as we sort of enter into this new series, it's so important to understand then how do we approach the parables of Jesus? What should be sort of our posture towards them? Here's what I think. Hopefully this is a very helpful picture. When we hear the parables of Jesus, we should think of ourselves like children listening to a king talk about his kingdom. Like, how do we humble ourselves and think of ourselves like children listening to the king talk about his kingdom? Because that's what's happening when Jesus is telling his stories, his parables. And so my prayer is that together, God would grant us eyes to perceive and ears to understand. Not just to hear, but to understand what he's trying to tell us about the kingdom of God over these next 12 weeks. Whew. There we go. Class is over. So if you have your Bible, grab it and turn with me to our first parable, which you will find in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first of the four Gospels in your Bible. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that. I use it all the time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's going to be in Matthew chapter 25. And you say, why did I pick this parable? Part of the reason is that it's the final parable that Jesus uses before he's arrested and he goes to the cross. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the parable and then I'm going to pause awkwardly for about 30 seconds. And I'd like you to just receive and hear before I start talking about the parable, what is it saying to you? Write that down. What do you first hear when you hear this parable spoken to you by the king about his kingdom? Okay? Here we go. Matthew 25, verse 14. Jesus said this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. For also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. But after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what this made me think. It's important to notice here, if you look in your Bible, if you have, if you have your Bible open, what happens right before and what right, happens right after uh, this parable. Now Matthew has organized these accounts in the way that he uh, chooses in order to highlight certain things. And so he's put this parable here. It's not necessarily that Jesus spoke this at this exact time, in his ministry, but Matthew's chosen to put it here because it highlights something very important that Matthew is trying to tell us about. So why has he put it here? Well, right before this, Jesus tells a a parable about ten virgins waiting for the groom to come to the wedding. And there's some that aren't ready. And it says this at the very end of that parable. This is 25.13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is incredibly important to understanding what comes next because what Matthew is trying to remind us of is that we must be diligent and watchful and not slothful. Again, you see that in the parable of the talents. And what comes right after is equally as important. Jesus then goes and talks about the final judgment when the Son of Man comes again in His glory. And so if you sort of see in the context this parable, He's clearly referencing (laughs) Jesus Himself as the one who leaves and the one who comes back again. So that's definitely in there. It's not the only thing that He's talking about, but it's definitely in there. The other thing I'll say about the context that's important to understand 
is that this parable, and, and we'll talk about it, is all about how our faith works itself out in action. Faith that works itself out in action. And faith that works itself out is, of course, very important. And we'll see why that is. But in the parable that came right before, this parable is very much about the inward, contemplative faith that's important. And so, if you put these together, if you just read them in isolation, you might think, okay, the Christian faith is all about doing things. But, again, that's not the case. The Christian faith is about both the outward life of doing things, being active, and the inward life of uh, contemplation and consideration and thinking about God and waiting, longing for Him to come. And so you want to, as a a believer, as a follower of Jesus, try to balance these out. You want both of these to be a part of your walk. Important to say that because where we'll go the rest of the day is all about active, outward faith. Okay? Important to see that. Now, The other thing I want to highlight for you is sort of the structure of this parable because you might say it seems uh, pretty obvious to me, but it's important to kind of understand these and we'll get better at seeing how the parables all fit together and how there's certain types of parables. Uh, This is what what would be known as a triangular, triadic parable. And here's what I mean. There's a master, okay? There's a master, clearly, and there's a good servant, and there's a bad servant. So you see the triangular triadic. So there's three main characters. You say, wait, Dave, there's four main characters. Well, actually, there's only two types of characters. There's the, or two types of servants. There's a good servant and the bad servant. And so those sort of function in the same role. So you say, well, why would he put in this extra servant? Here's why I think, and I think this is an important point. Why would he put in the extra servant if... if uh, one would have sufficed. Here's why. I think he's trying to highlight the fact by, by pointing out two good servants that it's not about sort of the gross amount <laughs> that they make. The point of the parable is not like there is some set amount of money that the master is trying to have everybody make. And it's clear because he gives two different examples of two different people who made different amounts of money with what he gave them. And I think if he had only chosen one, that might have been lost. And we might have thought all of us are responsible to the master for five talents. Not true. Even the example of the foolish servant, he says this, If you had just put it in the bank and at least earned such a measly interest rate, I would not be nearly as upset as I am now. And so the point is not the amount, the gross amount. The point is the heart behind it, and we'll see what that is. So we have this triadic structure, master, good servant, bad servant. Okay, some more initial observations that are important. So this idea of a talent, okay? The Greek word... Talanton is actually, uh, it was sort of the largest sum or denomination of money in the Greco-Roman world. And it was actually like either usually a bar of gold or silver. And it was equal to 6,000 denarii, which you may have heard that word, which is approximately, 6,000 denarii is approximately 20 years of minimum wage. But again, 
This gives you some, kind of the idea of the, the uh, investment. 20 years of minimum wage. So it's a pretty large sum of money. Uh, but the interesting part is, again, this parable is not just about money. In fact, you say, well, why this word talent? Well, the talent, talent is actually the Greek word, but what happened in the English language is because people were talking about this parable so much that the word talent came to be known for skill, smarts, endowment, all of these things. That's actually how we got the word talent from the parable of the talents. Interesting, right? And clearly, the reason we came to know that is because people have understood for years and years and years that this parable is not just about money. It doesn't exclude money, but it's not just about money. It's about anything that God invests. Important to say that up front. So when you hear me talking tonight, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about everything that God gives us, the Master gives us. So, another important observation um, is this. We might read this and we might think that Well, obviously, everybody knows that if somebody gives you a large sum of money, what you do is you invest it. I don't think that's a natural human tendency. I mean, if you're an investment banker, you're in finance, or you're a financial planner, uh, God bless you, you're helping people do that. But that's why people actually, even today, need help, because the natural tendency is not to go multiply what you have. The natural tendency is to hold on to it out of fear. And it would have been the same thing for the people whom Jesus was talking about. They they most likely would have said, I would have done exactly what the wicked servant did. Because I think that's the natural tendency. We fear losing, and so we live this life of maintenance of what we already have. That's why we pay financial folks so much money (laughs) to manage our money. Okay. Third initial observation. The master, of course, is God. And he cares. He cares how we use what he gives us. He cares more than we might ever imagine. God rewards. He rewards those who faithfully multiply what what he's given them. Multiply for his kingdom. Doesn't mean God rewards necessarily financially or with responsibility. I do not believe that's what this parable teaches. But I think what it teaches is he rewards with joy. It says, you will be brought into the joy of the master. Fifth uh, initial observation here. God takes away. He takes away blessing if we fail to trust in who he is when we're using that blessing. Okay. Now look here at verse 25 with me, and here's what I think the parable hinges on. This statement, verse 25. So the good servants have come, and they've multiplied everything that God has given them, and he is happy with them. Well done, good and faithful servant. But clearly... There's this other servant, and what he's done actually teaches more of a lesson because Jesus spends much more time talking about him. And here's what he says. 
Uh, We'll start in verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. He was afraid. He was so afraid. And here's what the master says to him. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. This is why you ought to have invested my money. (laughs) See here? He's saying, you know exactly who I am. You've gotten that exactly right. And that is exactly why you should have done something different. He's saying, your fear is the right kind of fear. He's saying, because you got it right, I'm a bad mama Gemma. I, I, will, I will knock you out. I am a bad man. That's what he said, I'm a hard man. I think that's where, it, have you heard, ever heard somebody say that? Man, I'm a hard man, you don't want to mess with me. No one's ever said that about me, by the way. <laughs> Dave Collins, though, I don't know if you've seen him. He's a hard man. Got roops where he does not sow, man. He's saying, you're right to be afraid because I am a hard man. But you also know that there's nothing that I can't get my hands on. This is the key. He's saying, there's nothing that I can't get my hands on. It doesn't matter if it's not even my own property. I'll go take it. That's how hard of a man I am. If I didn't, if I didn't put seed there, it doesn't matter. I'll take up that if I need it. He's saying, my resources are not limited, so why in the world do you think that losing one talent is going to break my bank? Therefore, the exact reason why you sh- uh, that you use to justify your lack of investment is the exact reason why you should have been out front, being brave and investing with great risk everything that I gave you. What are you doing? That's the kind of man this master in the parable was. Now, extrapolate with me. Climb the ladder, if you will. And what is this saying about who God is? Do you suppose that anything is outside of God's grasp? That there's nothing that he can't get his hands on? Can he not reap where he did not sow? Does he need you to hide what he gives you? Otherwise, he might, become, he might come out short in the end. Did God not create the world out of nothing? So why are you worried about taking risks with the talents He's given you? You see? If you know who He is, you should be the biggest risk taker. Because He is not limited at all in His resources or His power. I find myself more like the wicked servant than the good servant. I miss... The real reasons why God entrusts me with things, why He gives me kingdom resources. How many of you know the, the slogan, too big to fail? We've heard that. Okay, a lot of finance majors in here. Too big to fail. Well, too big to fail means this. In uh, 2008, if you know, the economy kind of took a downturn. And uh, the reason it took a downturn is because there was a bunch of really big banks that took some really big risks on something called 
subprime mortgages, amongst other things. And they were sort of living this high-risk, high-reward lifestyle. Now what happened was, when the housing industry tanked, they lost a lot of money, and, mo- and most all of them were about to go under until what happened? Dad stepped in. And he said, listen, y'all are too big to fail and injected money to keep them afloat. They're too big to fail. Because if they failed, the whole plan comes crashing down. The economy crashing down. The American dream crashing down. And the federal government says we can't have this. Now you can debate whether that's right or not, but the phenomenon is still there. They decided the banks were too big to fail, so we can't let them fail. Now, this is what's really scary about that. Now they know that they're too big to fail. Now they know that they won't ever (laughs) be let to just go based on their own decisions and their own risks. And so, I mean, I know not all of them are, are, I said some of these are great, great people, but uh, some of them maybe aren't. And so they know now, well, we can keep taking some risks, right? I mean, hopefully they don't, but they know now the federal government's not going to let me fail. Let's take some more risk. Now, this is sort of a negative example of the phenomenon of too big to fail. But, but look at the entities involved. Prone to corruption, prone to greed, prone to injustice because they're human beings, right? But what if the entities involved have proven to be holy, have proven to be generous, and have proven to be just? Then the phenomenon of too big to fail is quite an exciting phenomenon. And this parable of the talents, I think, highlights this truth about God. His plan is too big to fail. He is too big to fail. And as he gives us money to invest, he's not asking us to manage his risk for him. He's not asking us to be really, really smart with the things he's given us. He's asking us to know that his plan is too big to fail and so take some risks. Take some huge risks to multiply his kingdom. And this is like a constant theme throughout Scripture. We see it over and over again. Take big risks for God because God is too big to fail. Another way to say it might be this. You can take big risks when you have a really big safety net. You ever been on a ropes course? The weird thing about a ropes course is you know that you're not going to fall but it's still terrifying, right? You're, you're up there on the, you're on, you know, you're, you're climbing between two trees and you're like, oh my gosh. And it's like, if I fell, nothing would happen. I mean, the rope's only, there's only like three inches of slack in the rope, you know? I'm not even going to feel a sensation of falling, really. But the fear is still there. So what I'm not saying is that there's no fear involved in living in God's kingdom and living for God's kingdom. What I'm saying is there's a huge safety net. So I know this from my own story, this phenomenon that when we know we have a huge safety net, it's so much easier to take big risks. Let me explain. I have been given a lot in my life. 
I have a phenomenal family. I had a, I had a great upbringing. I've been given much education and training. I've been given uh, skills that have been sort of fostered through unique experiences that I've uh, been given. I've got uh, the most supportive parents. I've got an amazingly supportive sister and three amazing uh, sister-in-laws. I've got great grandparents, always have, great aunts and uncles uh, that support me. I've got an amazing wife. I've got literally the most supportive father-in-law and mother-in-law that a human being can have. I've got an amazing group of friends, and I've always had this great, amazing group of friends, some I've known since I was two years old, and we're still friends, legitimate entourage. I've got friends from every stage of life, college friends, friends from when I lived in Dallas, friends from when I lived in Denver. I've got all these people around me, and it goes on and on and on, and the resources God has given to me are incredible And so some time ago, I had to take a step back and I had to ask the scariest question I've ever asked in my life. And the question is this. All these good gifts God has given to me, why has He blessed me so? Why has He given me such a safety net as this? Two possible answers. One, for my own enjoyment and pleasure and comfort. I like that answer a lot. That sounds really good. Second possible, so that I can take giant risks for his kingdom. I'm standing here today because I obviously, well, you might not know this, I I answered number two. (laughs) I answered number two. And it's a terrifying realization. He hasn't given all that stuff so that I can enjoy it. He's given me this amazing safety net, this amazing uh, pool of resources because he wants me to take a big swing for the kingdom. He wants me to start a big fire for his glory. What's God given you? What's your safety net look like? You have an education? You got a great group of friends. You got parents who love and support you. Are you wealthy? Every single person in this room is wealthy because you live in the United States of America. Don't kid yourself. Is he giving you a fellowship group? A community that loves you unconditionally? We call this here a centering community, meaning no matter what you try, no matter what you do, no matter what business you get into, you can come back and lick your wounds and go try again. Has he given you that? Has he given you your youth? Have you come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord early in life? Do you think that was an accident? Or do you think he wants you to invest the time that he's now given you for something great? I hope this messes you up. Mess me up. The bigger the net, the bigger the risk. Now here's the great news. You can't lose. <laughs> you can't lose. I don't know. I've been to Vegas a few times, and this is how it always goes for me. I get $40 out of the ATM, and I take it into the casino, and I try to make that $40 last as long as possible. And the reason that I do that is because I'm so cheap that if I lost more than $40, I'd never forgive myself. <laughs> and I usually lose it within the first hour. 
and then, you know, I just watch other people play. But you know how that would change? If the head of the casino walked out onto the floor and saw me over there being all lame and whatnot, and he said, listen, we've got a million dollars we'd like to give you. It's house money. You don't have to pay it back. Just see how much money you can make tonight. I would change the way I played, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I change the amount I would bet on a hand of blackjack? Wouldn't I change the way I invested? Here's the idea. A gamble's not really a gambling when you're playing with house money. What house money's God given you? And what risks does he want you to take to expand his kingdom? We're playing with house money. Now, if it's house money, why is it still so terrifying to take risks for God? Here's the excuses I've said a million times, and you've probably said, and I hear it all the time. Listen, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. I just need some more time to get ready. Or you say this, the timing's just not right. I just got to wait for the perfect timing. Or you say this, something or someone else would be so much better at accomplishing that. I'm sure. I've met those people. We'll let them take care of it. Or you say this, you know, it's just not worth doing if I can't do it perfectly. Or finally this one, what if I break something? What if I screw it up so bad that it can't be undone? Here's your underlying belief, if you've ever said these, and I've said these. Your underlying belief is that success and failure of God's plan hinges on your execution. Success and failure in God's plans hinges on your execution. That's what you believe if you give those excuses, and I've given them. But here's the truth. It doesn't matter. It never has. It never will. God's plan cannot be thwarted. Christ has already proven that on the cross. It is won. The victory is won. You can't mess it up. So this is the question. If it can't be broken, if the plan can't fail, if I can't mess it up, then why should I work hard with the resources God has given me? The victory's already won. I can't mess it up. Then why work hard? Why not just enjoy everything he's given me? Here's the answer. Because he's asked you to multiply it. The creator of the universe has asked you to do something. That's why you do it. Not because he needs you, but because he's asked you. And you say, yes. I believe God's asked me to plant this church. That is the main reason why I'm still doing it one year later. Now here is the good news, the gospel. We're not the first to take a big risk. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has taken 
the ultimate risk. He voluntarily came to earth, voluntarily went to die on a Roman cross. He is the example of perfect, full courage. And you say, how is that courage possible? Well, it must be because he was God also, and so he had no fear. Not true. Jesus had fear. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was fully human as well as fully God, so he had fear. The way he took the risk in the face of fear was by trusting and believing by faith in who God the Father was. And he knew by the eyes of faith. Now, he did not know. He had given up his ability to sort of see the full thing play out. And so like us, he was using not eyes divine, but eyes of faith, trusting in what God the Father had told him, that even if he went, to the, uh, went into the grave, that it could not hold him, and God would raise him from the grave. And he believed him. That's how he took the risk. That's how he voluntarily went to the cross. And we can, too, have that kind of faith that propels us forward. Paul says this in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor the height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul stared death in the face. He took some serious risks with the things God had given him because he believed that nothing could separate him from the love of God. That's the gospel. The gospel proves that the victory is won. The grave is empty. Jesus is no longer in there. He's won. Praise God. The early church knew this. The early church knew this, and that's why you see this weird movement of people. It's not military at all. It's just these people who believe that this guy rose from the dead, and they start a movement that is what it is now. They were fishermen, not that impressive, but they took huge risks because they knew the victory was won. Uh, There's a couple by the name of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. You may or may not have heard of them. They had uh, met each other, and five and a half years later, they finally got married. And 27 months into their marriage, God asked them to go to the jungles of Ecuador, and to teach people about Jesus. And they went, because he asked. Five and a half years, they'd known each other. Elizabeth Elliot had waited five and a half years to marry the man that she wanted to marry. 27 months of marriage, one child later, in the jungle of Ecuador. Jim and five other men uh, went out from their home base, took a plane, landed on a river, And Elizabeth was back at home, at the home base, and this is what she writes. When I stood by my shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956 and heard that my husband was missing, God brought to me the words of the prophet Isaiah. When thou passeth through the waters, I will be with thee. You can imagine, this is, these are her words, you can imagine that my response was not terribly spiritual. I was saying, but Lord, you're with me all the time. What I want is Jim. 
I want my husband. He had been married, uh, we had been married 27 months after waiting five and a half years. Five days later, I knew that Jim was dead. And God's present presence with me was not Jim's presence. That was a terrible fact. Elizabeth Elliot reminds us of an important fact in all of this that I'm talking about. Taking a risk for God doesn't mean that there's not real pain and real loss and real suffering. It just means that it's not the end. The greatest part of this story is that Elizabeth and the other five wives who had lost husbands, you know what they didn't do? They didn't head back to America. They spent the next two years taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the same people that had killed their husbands. They spent two years teaching them about the kingdom of God, about Jesus and his forgiveness. They stayed and risked even more because God asked them. What in the name of all names and all that is right would make somebody do that? They took God at at his word. They believed what he says, that the victory is won, that the grave is empty, that not death can hold, not a one of us. No fear in life, no fear in death. That's the power of Christ in me. So how then shall we live? as individuals. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, how then shall we live? The equation goes like this in the parable. God gave, I invest for His kingdom. Okay? That's how it goes. God gave, I invest for His kingdom. So God gave me these friendships. How might I invest them for His kingdom? God gave me this wealth. How might I invest that for His kingdom? God gave me these skills. How might I invest them for His kingdom? God gave me this community. How might I invest it for His kingdom? That's the equation. Now here's what's important. This is so important about this parable. We need to stop comparing ourselves to others. We need to stop comparing and look at what God has given to us individually. He calls them each one by one. And it's probably not one by one. They're all standing listening. It's probably at different times He calls them forward. Why? Because God doesn't care what He gave somebody else. He cares what He gave you. God doesn't care what... He doesn't say, well, I gave Dave that and look what he did. What are you doing with it? No, He says, this is what I gave you. What are you doing with it? God has given to each person exactly what He wanted to give to them, and it's not the same thing. And so it's the most unhealthy thing you can ever do to compare yourself to someone else. And there's two equally uh, detrimental ways that we compare ourselves. This is so important. Stick with me. The first is this. I look at someone else and I compare what they have multiplied, and I think, wow, they are such better Christians than I am. That's the first way. The second way is this. I look at someone else and I compare myself to them and think, wow, how great am I? 
Because God might have given them five talents to start with, and they multiplied it to ten, whereas I might have been given one talent and multiplied it to two talents. But if you compare your two to their ten, you'll feel very guilty. But that's not what the parable teaches us. That's not how Jesus sees the talents. This is even more dangerous in my mind. They have been given one talent and multiplied it to two talents. But I have been given five talents and I have added one talent to make it six. Now, I look at my six talents and I either think to myself, compared to the two talents, I did a pretty good thing for the kingdom of God because I got six. We both added one. So we're both doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Or even worse than that is I think, man, look at my six compared to their two. I'm pretty hot stuff. I've been in both places. I've fallen into these traps on both sides. I don't want to make any, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here, but if you... Just look at the final outcome. You are totally missing the point of God's kingdom. He doesn't just look at the final thing that you bring to him. He looks at what he gave you, and then he looks, what did you do with it? And there might be some of you that he's given you a lot, and you've added one talent, and you're feeling pretty good about it. I'm scared for you. Two principles. I know this is a lot. This is very important stuff. It doesn't matter how much he gives you to start with. He expects you to invest it, to expand his kingdom, and he expects you to take big risks. Don't make excuses. (laughs) Principle two. It doesn't matter what guy or gal sitting next to you, what they do with their gift. It only matters what you do with yours. It'll look very, very different. It only matters. You need to talk to God and ask Him what He wants you to do. A risk is not a risk when you're dealing with God's money. So stop comparing yourself and start investing it. Start some conversations with friends you've always wanted uh, to start conversations with. Take the love of the kingdom of God into unpopular places. Step out of the comfort zone. Place yourself in meaningful community. Invite someone to coffee that you don't know very well. Invite a friend to the Alpha course that Chris talked about. Ask your party friends if they want to study the, uh, the Gospel of John with you. Have a conversation with your girlfriend or your boyfriend that you know you need to have, but you always push it off because the timing's not right. Tell your spouse how you are really feeling. Tell your parents how thankful you are for the ways that, way they raised you, even the hard stuff. Tell your best friend that you love them too much to let them go down that path towards destruction. And get your hands a little bit dirty for someone who needs your help. That's how you should live in the kingdom of God. Now here's the very important final piece. How then shall we live as a community? How then shall we live as a community if the parable of the talents is about the kingdom of God, that he's too big to fail, that the safety net is there, This is what I'm terrified about. This is why I picked this parable to preach on the one-year anniversary. I'm terrified about year two because the danger is this. We see everything that God has given us and everything that he has built and all the goodness that is sitting in this room right now, and you know what we do? We hold on to it. We build walls around it. 
We dig a nice ditch so that nobody can get to us. And we stop moving forward and taking risks for the kingdom of God because we don't want to lose what He's already given to us. I tell you what, this is what's happening again and again in churches around this country. Let this not be what happens at Sedaris. Let's take more risk. Let's push the kingdom further because now we have more resources. And we just keep doing that. And that is our legacy. And that is our equation. And we just keep pushing it forward. And we never stop and say, whoa, 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 we've got a good thing. Let's make sure we don't lose it. Do we think that God can't sow where he did not scatter seed? Who do we think he is? You say, Dave, let's just do that later. Let's enjoy this for a little bit. We have no idea when he's coming back. We need to stop saying (laughs) that. What's next for us? What's next for this community? How are we going to push out into Seattle the truth of the love of Jesus Christ? What is next for us? Let's be that kid who jumps in the puddle because we just want to make a big splash. And we're, Don't be the kid who's so scared what your parents are going to do like, oh, you splashed me. Jump in the puddle because God's going to look at us. Dad's going to look at us. He's going to say, that was awesome. I'm so glad you jumped in that puddle. I've been wanting somebody to jump in that puddle. It's just been sitting there, but I couldn't do it. I sent you to go do it. Oh, jump in the puddle. Now, yeah, if, write that down if you don't write. Jump in the puddle. Now, this is my final. I already said final, but I've got one thing. This is so important. Yeah. Listen, focus in right now. Okay. You say, may- maybe you're an NYC. Maybe you're an NYC. Not yet Christian. Maybe you're an NYC and you're saying, what, what does this parable have to say to me? I'm not a part of the kingdom of God. I'm not a child. What is it saying to me? Here's what I want you to take away from this parable. Because I love you dearly. If you do not yet consider yourself a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. We exist. I hope you hear that. Because we want to serve you. We don't want to just use this place to bless ourselves. We want to serve you. We want to serve you. We love you dearly. And this is what I want you to hear about this parable. We are so glad that you are here. Now that you know that this parable is true and that Jesus Christ, who Christians in this room claim to be their Lord and Savior and Master, has said this to them, this is what I want you to do. This is your chance tonight. I want you, whoever brought you, and if you just ended up here by yourself, come see me. I want you to grab whoever you came with. I want you to grab them by their collar and stare them in the eye and said, I need you to teach me about that kingdom. Stop waiting. I need somebody to tell me about this kingdom. That's what I want you to take from this parable because every single one who calls themselves a Christian in this room knows that they need to take a risk and tell you about the kingdom. So grab them by their collar and make them tell you. Make them teach you. And don't stop asking questions. Ask every question that you have. And if you don't know somebody, come talk to me. I will not sleep until you know about the goodness of God. And the kingdom. Oh, dear God. May we be a people who jump in puddles all over the city. Here's my hope 
Join me on this journey. We're stepping into an exciting time, year two, exposing ourselves to the revelation of God through the parables of Jesus. He's going to tell us what does it mean to be His children? What does His kingdom look like? And as we open up the mystery involved in the relationship between God and men, it's going to be amazing. I believe that He will open our eyes and our ears to understand and perceive everything that He wants us to know so that we can go and be fruitful for His kingdom. And He's given us a lot in this room. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You forgive us for the times that we hoard for ourselves everything that is Yours. Forgive us for the times when we believe that You're not big enough that if we lose what you've given us or we take a risk and it doesn't work out the way that we thought that we've somehow screwed up your plan, we repent of that thought that is not true, that is not who you are. You reap where you did not sow. You are so much bigger than we give you credit for. Do not let us lie to ourselves. Help us to take big risks for your kingdom. Help us to know that the safety net is vast. Help us to know that the victory is won, that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and he's risen again and it is won. Help us to go forward and out into this city with the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.